This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British royal history. This week officially marks the 24th anniversary of the death and funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. Early in the morning on August 31st, 1997, the world awoke to the news of the accident that eventually took the princess's life. While attempting to escape a barrage of photographers and press in a last-minute stop in Paris, the car carrying the Princess of Wales, Dodi Al-Fayed, Diana's boyfriend at the time, Henri Paul, the driver, and Trevor Reese jones the bodyguard, crashed into concrete supports in the Palace de l'Alma underpass. The paparazzi at this time just wouldn't leave him alone. Photos of Dodie and Diana kissing at the time fetched upwards of $4 million. After finishing at the Hotel Ritz in Paris early in the evening, Diana and Dodie left and went back to his private residence near the Arc du Triomphe. They had plans to eat dinner elsewhere, but the paparazzi presence was too much, and they made a very last-minute decision to go back to the hotel instead. At 12.20 a.m., Dodie and Diana, paired with their bodyguard, exited the back of the hotel and got into a black Mercedes. The driver was a security guard at the hotel and had really no experience of being a driver, especially when driving someone of this importance. His blood alcohol content was astronomical at the time, and he was driving recklessly in order to shake the heavy presence of photographers and press. Heading into the tunnel, it said that he was going a little over 60 miles per hour when the speed limit entering the tunnel was 30. There was a sharp downhill getting into the tunnel, which is why they cut the speed limit down. He lost control trying to lose the paparazzi and crashed. Instead of calling for the police or seeing if she was okay, the photographers and other press stood and took pictures. Many still blame the press to this day, wondering if they had called sooner or simply just left them alone. Maybe Diana would have survived. Dodie Al-Fayed and Henri Paul were pronounced dead at the scene. Diana was triaged at sight and then sent to La Petite Salpetriere Hospital, where she was later pronounced dead after two hours of emergency surgery. Turns out in the accident, she got a rare injury to her left lung that started to bleed out and she went into cardiac arrest. They just couldn't get her heart started again. They couldn't fix the wound. The only survivor of the crash was Trevor Reese Jones, and he was the only one that had his seatbelt on. Injuries to his head were so severe that years after the crash, he can't remember a thing. It's all just blank. 
At this point in the princess's life, things were slowly on the upswing. The one-year anniversary of her divorce had just passed on the 28th, and she seemed to really be settling into her life officially outside of the royal family. She was doing humanitarian work for causes that really resonated with her. She had auctioned off almost all of her former royal wardrobe for charity, and she seemed to be settling into a rhythm of co-parenting with Prince Charles. She did have a few dalliances, but to us, the general public, it seemed that Dodi Al-Fayed was the serious boyfriend. Despite his reputation at the time, Dodi seemed to be Diana's love. However, not everything was as great as it seems. According to those close to Diana at the time, the couple was starting to drift apart. It seems like they were on different levels of their relationship. They seemed like they were on different pages. The plan was to stop in Paris after their holiday, I believe in the Mediterranean. And the stop in Paris was incredibly last minute. Those close to Diana said that she was actually a little frustrated at the stop. They checked in in the afternoon at the Hotel Ritz in Paris, which was owned by Dodie's father at the time. Diana called Prince William and Harry at Balmoral, while Dodie went out to a jeweler and shopped for two rings to give to Diana. Again, those close to her said she was not interested in getting engaged anymore. She didn't want to get engaged to Dodie, and that if he were to give her a ring, it would be firmly on her right hand. Was it an engagement ring? Was Dodie wanting to advance their relationship in order to try to keep her? We'll never know the truth. When the news reached the royal family that the Princess of Wales had died, it rocked them to their core. Yes, there were still some lingering issues within the family, some resentments here and there, but now she was dead. What about William and Harry, Diana's brothers and sisters? What would this mean for the family? This had never happened before. A divorced Princess of Wales dying in a tragic accident. What was, what was the protocol for this? In the week following her death and eventual funeral, the world dived headfirst into public mourning. Flowers and other gifts started to pile outside Buckingham Palace, Kensington Palace, Windsor Castle, and Balmoral, and many other royal residences. They began to overtake the gates and in some ways make their own peninsulas and islands everywhere as people had shrines to the late princess. Every royal residence became a pilgrimage point for the public to mourn together. Countless guest and condolence books were signed by the public, and the overall mourning continued to grow as the week progressed forward. Princess Diana touched people in ways that royals had never done before. Yes, she may not have known all of them, but they knew all of her, and it was as if they lost a friend a family member, someone who truly cared and saw them. I can vaguely remember her death. I remember my mother being very affected by it. Here in America, it still hit us pretty hard. Nowhere as hard as it was in England and across the UK, but we loved her here in America, and I can't remember too much of it, but my mother was deeply impacted by it. She watched the funeral, she kept up with press coverage, I don't think she bought any magazines to commemorate, but she did her best to keep up with it. She really resonated 
Diana really resonated with her and she was deeply devastated. She still gets a little sensitive talking about it today. And we're American over here. While the public was doing what they could to pay their respects and to honor the late princess, what was the royal family doing? Where were the royals this week? Two things were going on that were some of the hardest things the queen and the royal family had to face this week. The first was that while the nation lost a princess, two boys lost their mother. Two families were broken that day. And so in order to protect itself, the royal family just closed flanks. They sort of retracted inward and they did everything they could to protect the and shelter and comfort the young Prince William and Prince Harry. They were up at Balmoral and they really wanted to stay there that week to keep the boys out of the public so they could mourn and accept things in, you know, in their own time. Sources close to the family say that she took the TV out of the nursery. She tried to make sure at the church service, immediately following, to not really talk about it, just to let the boys be distracted and process it on their own time. Additionally, the other crisis was Diana wasn't a member of the royal family anymore, technically speaking. She divorced Prince Charles in 1996, and yes, she got to keep her title of Princess of Wales. She was no longer an HRH. She fell into the same ranks as the Duchess of York, a former member of the firm, a a former working royal who is close to the royal family but isn't associated with them anymore. So her not technically being a member of the royal family meant per protocol dictates they didn't need to do anything. It fell back to the Spencer family and they were fully prepared to just have a private family funeral. But that wasn't enough for the public at the time. They needed something from their queen. And all they received from her was silence. Nothing got in or out of the family that week, so the rest of the nation, and in most cases the world, was kept locked out. And they needed something. They needed some form of support from the queen and the royal family. There wasn't a formal statement issued immediately after the death. The flag wasn't hung over Buckingham Palace. There wasn't a speech. There wasn't anything. It was just silence. Hindsight's always 2020 in this instance because now we know what was going on. And now we can have a greater sense of empathy for what was happening. As we've all lost someone very close, I'm still recently going through grief of losing someone myself. But at the time... That wasn't what the public needed, and the the royal family began to notice that things were starting to turn on them. The film, The Queen from 2006, does a pretty decent job of filling in the coloring book of what might have happened. It comes from the imagination of Peter Morgan, and we've all seen The Crown in his wonderful imagination of these very private family moments. And this was, in some ways, his first foray into something as serious as this. So it's not biblical truth. It's a work of historical fiction. But it's dramatized enough and takes enough liberties to fill in of, hey, this might have happened. And I'd recommend it to anybody. It's such a fantastic film depicting this very hard week for the royal family. After much discussion with the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, with the Queen, and the Spencer family, it was finally decided that she would have a formal public funeral. The event was not technically a formal state funeral. 
Instead, it was, quote, a ceremonial funeral that included royal pageantry and Anglican funeral liturgy. Again, while this wasn't a formal state funeral, the funeral plans for the Queen Mother were adapted. Her funeral was codenamed Operation Taybridge, and it had been rehearsed for 22 years. All the military branches and everybody involved, they knew what to do, so it was a plan that had been rehearsed enough that they were able to change it on the fly and adapt it for the princess to give her something dignified and something truly fitting for her, but it still technically wasn't a formal state funeral. After being in hospital in Paris, Diana returned to England on the evening of August 31st. Her remains were airlifted back to London and her coffin was received and followed the entire time from Paris back to London by Prince Charles and Diana's sisters, Lady Sarah McCorkadale and Lady Jane Fellows. They were by her side the entire time. Upon arrival, Diana's coffin was draped with the royal standard and was removed from the aircraft and transferred into a waiting hearse by the bearer party from the Queen's Color Squadron of the RAF. Among those there at the airport, aside from Lady Jane, Lady Sarah, and Prince Charles, was the Prime Minister. Following this, Diana was placed in a temporary private mortuary in London while all of the official paperwork was taken care of. They still needed to do all of that. It wasn't done in Paris, which makes sense. They wanted her family to be there, and she needed to be placed just somewhere temporary while they did all the legal paperwork, filed the death certificate, and did all of that. Shortly after midnight, the princess was then moved to the Chapel Royal at St. James's Palace, where she lay privately until Friday, September 5th when she was then taken to Kensington Palace for the final night before her funeral on September 6th. In this time, while she was both at Kensington Palace and St. James's Palace, this was ample time for family members, friends, and other loved ones to grieve and be with her privately. I believe her butler, Paul Burrell, Burrell, I believe is how it's pronounced, spent time with her there and really never left her side. And at that, from what I've read, I don't know exactly how much truth that holds. Two days before the funeral, the royal family finally gave the public what they wanted. But in some cases, it was a little too late. The flag was finally flown at half-mast above Buckingham Palace, and the royal family emerged from Balmoral, as well as all, uh, other locations, to greet the public and mourn with them. Walls of flowers, signs, and more still formed this wall against the palace and gates, but at this point, it's been almost a week. We've all seen those countless photographs of Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace, where there's all of the flowers at the gate, where it looks like it's its own peninsula, just feet, 20, 30 feet deep of flowers and gifts and candles and signs and there was even a little bit outside Balmoral as remote as Balmoral is they still found a way to get up there and leave signage for the family to honor Diana. Not all the signs were kind though in some cases they were a little bit brutal. I remember seeing some that said they didn't deserve you, your blood is on their hands and other things like that as the public defended their princess against an institution that didn't really seem to approve of her. They were facing, they being the royal family, faced a lot of public scrutiny as the public really began to turn. Their general upset over not seeing anything at the time of their emergence, two days before the funeral, the public was very angry. We've all seen photos and 
some cases facsimiles of those headlines of where are you why aren't you here we need you so at the time the public was very very angry at the royals there every all public approval really seemed to dip for the royals at this time and still in some cases some historians have said that this might have been a little too late that the public had really turned but they began to get the public back on their side or rather the public began to approve of them when they went out and started talking to the public especially i've seen archival footage of william and harry going to see the public and greeting them and taking the flowers from them to the gates and talking to them and the queen really being out there and accepting flowers that people had given to her and just being with the people they uh once they finally emerged the public began they all could finally grieve together the queen finally did address the public when she made her famous televised speech commemorating and honoring diana princess of wales one of her lines that really seems to resonate with a lot of everybody reads as follows what i say to you now as your queen and as a grandmother I say from my heart. Apparently, the addition of as a grandmother was something very last minute done by the queen herself. And I think that really helps humanize her and the family that, yes, they may be royals, but they're all still a family. And this is affecting them, too. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. September 6th, the day of the funeral the world stood still. Eight members of the Welsh Guard accompanied Diana's coffin, draped in a royal standard with an ermine border, on the one hour and 47 minute ride through the London streets. On top of the coffin were three wreaths of white flowers from her brother, the Earl Spencer, and her two sons, Prince William and Prince Harry. Atop one of the wreaths sat a letter from Prince Harry with mummy on the front. At St. James's Palace, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, her sons, and her brother joined to walk behind the coffin. 500 representatives of various charities the princess had been involved with joined behind them in the funeral cortege. When remembering, Alistair Campbell revealed in his diaries that the government and the royal household feared for the safety of Prince Charles at the time, believing that he would possibly get attacked by the crowd. Thus, they ensured he would be accompanied by his sons in order to prevent that. Additionally, Prince Charles wore a blue suit instead of black, and some people criticized him for doing so, but it was actually a subtle sartorial message. The suit he wore was one that Diana picked out specifically for him that she liked, and it is said, according to sources close to the Prince of Wales, that that was one of her favorite suits that he wore. So he wore that suit in honor of her. She picked it out. It was a suit she liked on him. They may not have been married anymore, but it was, that was a little su subtle sign of respect. Whether deliberate or not, it is a sartorial message. When remembering back to, to this specific event, Prince William later described it as, quote, one of the hardest things I've ever done. 
And Prince Harry mentioned that no child, quote, should be asked to do what they did. Nevertheless, William saw this act as a necessity to maintain, quote, balance between duty and family. And Harry said that he was, quote, very glad that he took part in the procession. As Diana's coffin made its way from Kensington Palace through the streets of London, through the grieving public, she made her way past Buckingham Palace and past a large entourage of members of the royal family. Those included were Her Majesty the Queen, the Queen Mother, and Princess Margaret. But as the coffin slowly made its way past the royal family entourage, the Queen broke with protocol and did something that no one expected her to do, no one asked her to do, but in some ways reveals some of her true feelings, in my opinion, towards Princess Diana. As Diana's coffin made its way past the Queen, the Queen bowed her head in a symbol of respect. And that, listeners, is something that I find very powerful, that many people find very powerful. Rarely have we seen, as Queen, Her Majesty bow or curtsy to anyone. And on the day of the funeral, the Queen bowed to Princess Diana. More than one million people lined the streets of London to see and mourn as Diana's coffin made its way from Kensington Palace to Westminster Abbey. Flowers rained down on the cortege from bystanders. In, in, in some instances, the cars had to stop in order to pick the flowers up off the front of in the hood of the car so that the driver could see. Two screens were erected to relay the Westminster Abbey service to Hyde Park in order to allow the public to participate in the service and mourn together. The funeral officially began at 11 a.m. in Westminster Abbey and lasted a little over an hour and 10 minutes. The royal family placed wreaths alongside Diana's coffin and they were in the presence of Britain's former living prime ministers. Among those were John Major, Margaret Thatcher, James Callaghan, and Edward Heath. Conservative MP Winston Churchill, the grandson of the World War II-era Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill, was also present and among the former Prime Ministers. The guest list was massive, featuring celebrities, politicians, humanitarian figures, friends, family, and more, all of whom had some form of interaction with Diana. The then U.S. First Lady Hillary Clinton was was present on behalf of the sitting president at the time, Bill Clinton, but also because in the last few years of her life, Diana and Hillary started to strike up a pretty good friendship. Additionally, because this wasn't a former state funeral, the U.S. president was not required to attend. Other notable guests include Sir Cliff Richard, William J. Crow, the French First Lady at the time, Bernadette Chirac, Egyptian First Lady Suzette Mubarak, Queen Noor of Jordan, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Sir Elton John, George Michael, which as an aside, apparently the friendship between Princess Diana and George Michael was so strong, Diana was the only person that could make George Michael feel, quote, ordinary. But the list continues. Chris DeBurr, Michael Barrymore, Mariah Carey, Richard Branson, Luciano Pavarotti, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Richard Attenborough, Ruby Wax, as well as Irman Khan and his then-wife Jemima Khan. The sitting prime minister, Tony Blair, read an excerpt from the first epistle of the Corinthians, chapter 13. And now, Adbeth, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Other European 
royal houses were represented as the King of Spain, Princess Marguerite of the Netherlands, the Crown Prince and Crown Princess of Japan, and the deposed King Constantine II of Greece were all in attendance, as well as the then South African President Nelson Mandela. While it is wonderful to talk about all the who's who and the celebrities that were in attendance at the funeral, we also need to remember that Diana's family was still, was, was still there. Her father had passed a few years before, so that's why her brother, Charles, was the now Earl Spencer. All of Diana's maternal figures were there, both her biological and stepmother, and their relationships differed greatly. It's known that Diana didn't have the best relationship with her stepmother, Rain, and it is known that she gave her the nickname Acid Rain. But in the last few years of Diana's life, her and the Dowager Countess really began to make amends. Diana reached out to her and they really began to talk through everything, and at the time of her death, they were at least on much better terms. I'm not sure if it was actually friendly, amicable terms, but they at least understood one each other better. Diana was not on good terms with her mother at the time of her death. Her mother had made some comments that were racist and bigoted towards the men that she was seeing, and her and Diana had allegedly gotten to a few arguments, and Diana wasn't talking to her at the time of her death. Additionally, members of the royal family, while there on behalf of duty and they had to be there, did not have the best relationship with Diana at the time of her funeral, at the time of her death and the funeral. The Queen Mother and Princess Margaret apparently never really approved of her, although Princess Margaret was friendly with her and civil and by all means liked her until her 1995 interview with Panorama. After that, Princess Margaret cut her out. The Queen Mother apparently never really approved of her, especially as time went on. There were times where she compared her to Wallace Simpson as she felt that she could bring down the whole monarchy. As well, the Duchess of York wasn't on good terms with Diana as well. And while they, when they were in the when they were in the royal family and married, they really got along really well. Her and Fergie got along really well and they had a pretty good friendship. But then a few years before her death, they had a big falling out and if my memory's correct, that's one of the regrets that Fergie has uh, about her friendship. She wished she could have repaired it before she died. But fact check me on that one. The Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, and the Dean of Westminster, Wesley Carr, were present at the Abbey and delivered the biting, the prayer, and the commendation. The service was sung by the Choir of Westminster Abbey and conducted by organist and master of the choirsters, Martin Neary. Music before the service included the hymn tune Eventide, pieces such as Adagio and E, the hymn tune Rosmarid, Ich Ruf zu dir, Herr Jesus Christ, BWV 639, Fantasia in C minor, BWV 537, Adagio in G minor, Symphony number no. 9, and Variation 9, Adagio Nimrod. Those are just some of the pieces that were featured. It was a wide variety of composers. The Anglican service opened with the traditional singing of God Save the Queen, which is per standard royal protocol. The funeral started with the choir singing the funeral sentences composed by William Croft and Henry Purcell, but among the pieces listed, there were more by Johann Sebastian Bach, Anton Dvorak, Camille Sanson, Gustav Holst, and more. It was a huge variety of music that was selected at the funeral, which goes to show some of the pieces that Diana really hold, held close to her. The hymns were I Vow to Thee My Country by Sir Cecil Spring Rice, which was set to the tune by Gustav Holst. 
The King of Love, My Shepherd Is by Henry Baker to the tune Dominus Regit Me by John Bacchus Dykes and Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer by William Williams to the tune Cum Ronda by John Hughes. The chant Libra May was sung by the BBC singers together with Lynn Dawson to the tune by Giuseppe Verdi. During the service, Sir Elton John, one of Diana's close friends, sang Candle in the Wind, but it had been rewritten in tribute to Diana. It is said that Sir Elton contacted his writing partner, Bernie Taupin, and asked him to revise the lyrics to the 1973 song in order to honor Diana, and Taupin rose to the occasion accordingly. Within the service, Diana's siblings had their chance to participate and do a few readings and say the eulogy. Diana's sister, Lady Sarah, gave the first reading, a poem titled Turn Again to Life by Mary Lee Hall, and Diana's other sister, Lady Jane, gave the second reading, a poem titled Time is Taken from Music by Henry Van Dyke Jr. Her brother Charles, the Earl Spencer, gave the eulogy in which he rebuked and really called out the royal family and the press for their treatment of his sister. He really stood up to the royal family in his eulogy, and some call it apropos, and some people call it inappropriate. The public is still very divided in their opinion about what Charles said in the eulogy. He said, quote, It is a point to remember that of all the ironies about Diana, perhaps the greatest was this. A girl given the name of the ancient goddess of hunting was, in the end, the most hunted person of the modern age. Lord Spencer also said, quote, On behalf of your mother and sisters, I pledge that we, your blood family, will do all we can to continue the imaginative way in which you were steering these two exceptional young men so that their souls are not simply immersed in duty and tradition, but can sing openly as you planned. His eulogy was very much a slap in the face to the royal family, and again, if my memory's correct, once his eulogy finished, the public began applauding outside, and it was a thunderous applause that leaked its way into the abbey. Following more music, there was a moment of silence that was commemorated by half-muffled uh, ringing from the abbey's ten bells, so there was a moment of silence towards the end of the service. During this time, the rest of the world paid tribute to Diana their own way, all throughout England, Various cities and cathedrals held their own services and tributes in order to honor Diana. The Irish national flag was flown at half-mass on all state buildings on the day of Diana's funeral. Additionally, here in America, a memorial service was held at the Washington National Cathedral, which was attended by 2,170 people. Those among were the British ambassador at the time, John Kerr, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Bill Richardson, and chairman of the Washington Post Company Executive Committee, Catherine Graham. In Tonga, a group of mourners organized a traditional wake, or pongi pongi, after the funeral. So much was the public in need that on September 7th, that next day, that Sunday, an additional service to honor Diana was performed at Westminster Abbey to fill the public. Television coverage of the funeral was watched by 31 million people just in the United Kingdom, making it still the most watched live broadcast to date. Worldwide, the television audience is estimated to be around 2.5 billion people. Following the service at Westminster Abbey, Diana traveled from London all the way back to her family's ancestral home of Althorpe. 
The burial occurred privately later that same day. Diana's former husband, her sons, her mother, her siblings, and a close friend, as well as a few clergymen were present at the time of the burial. Diana's body was clothed in a black, long-sleeve, three-quarter length woolen cocktail dress designed by Catherine Walker, which Diana had selected a few weeks ago to be worn. Uh, she was also accompanied with a pair of black pantyhose and a pair of black shoes. A set of rosary beads was placed in her hands, which was a gift from Mother Teresa, who died the exact same week as Princess Diana. In her hands were also a famous photograph of, of her sons, a photograph that she kept with her when she traveled, and that photo was found in her handbag. Additionally, her butler, Paul, Paul Burrell, took some photos from her Kensington Palace apartments of Prince William and Prince Harry that I believe were on her vanity. He took those photos and put them in her coffin with her. At the burial, the royal standard which had covered Diana's coffin from the moment it touched down in London until it got to Althorpe was removed. Paul Burrell claimed that the standard had been removed by Diana's brother moments before she was buried and was replaced with the Spencer family flag. He claimed that the Earl said, quote, she is a Spencer now. Burrell also uh, condemned the move, telling the Daily Mirror that, quote, it had more to do with the Spencer versus Windsor war than doing what Diana would have wanted. It was inappropriate and disrespectful. I knew it was not what Diana would have wanted. With that act, her brother was depriving the princess of her proper status in life, a status of which she was proud. Lord Spencer called Burrell's comments, quote, hurtful lies, and said in a statement, quote, the Queen's standard was removed as a part of the ceremony by her own officer in a dignified and prearranged manner. So we know that she isn't buried with the royal standard. That much is true, but we don't, at least I don't know if it's true that her coffin was then draped with the Spencer coat of arms and the Spencer flag. I don't, I've read enough where it's wishy-washy. I don't know if she was actually buried with the Spencer flag over her coffin instead, and we'll never know. The original plan was for Diana to be buried in the Spencer family vault at the local church in the nearby town of Great Brighton. But Lord Spencer was really concerned about public safety at the time and the onslaught of mourners that would more than likely go there. And he feared the safety of not only them, but also the safety of his sister. So instead, they decided to bury her privately on the grounds of Althorpe so that him, other Spencer family members, and William and Harry could come whenever they wanted and be with her privately. Her grave sits on an island in the middle of a lake within the grounds of Althorpe. The ground was consecrated by the Bishop of Petersburg prior to the burial. The island is in an ornamental lake known as the Round Oval within Althorpe's gardens. A path with 36 oak trees, one marking each year of her life, leads to the oval. Four black swans swim in the lake. In the waters, there are water lilies, which in addition to white roses, were Diana's favorite flowers. On the southern verge of the round oval sits the summer house, previously in the gardens of Admiralty House, London, which has now been adapted to serve as a memorial to Diana. An ancient arborarium stands nearby, which contains trees planted by the family to honor her. The Spencer family's decision to bury the princess in this secluded and very private location was, was to enable them to be able to visit her grave in private. The burial party was provided by the 2nd Battalion, the Princess of Wales' Royal Regiment, who were given the honor of carrying the princess across to the island and officially lay her to rest. 
Diana was the regiment's colonel-in-chief from 1992 to 1996. Recently, and when I say recent, I mean a few years ago, her burial plot and the oval that it's sitting in in the middle of the lake has gone under some cleaning and refurbishment to try to preserve and uh, give the land and the burial plot the respect and honor that it needs when and what it needs and it deserves. When you visit Althorpe, yes, there is the area that I had previously said where there's a memorial to Princess Diana. It looks like it's a gigantic mausoleum where you would think she was buried in there. Her dates, there's photos, there's a whole area of Althorpe dedicated to her, but the public will never be able to go across to the lake to actually visit her and visit her grave. That I can guarantee will never happen, at least not in my lifetime. They deliberately put her there so that she could rest in privacy and rest and be away from the public that so hounded her for most of her life. It's weird to think about that it's been 24 years since this accident and her funeral and how this was so much of a turning point for the royal family. But let's take a few moments to actually reflect how important Diana was to the royal family without them even knowing it. It helped to bring them into a modern age, and it, she was someone so warm and so caring and didn't care about the cold rules of royal protocol. She was there for the people, and she gave the people what they needed and what they wanted. I remember reading a few times different stories about her that when she was going places, she they were expecting a princess, so she gave them a princess. But it was her version of a princess. As I said last week, it's so easy to remember the pain, to remember the trauma and the awfulness that she went through in her life, especially when she was with the royal family. But let's not forget the beauty that she was, the warmth, the hard worker, the care, the caring soul that helped completely change the royal family. Upon her death, the royal family really changed a lot became more close to the public, visiting hospitals and talking and spending time with people, trying to be more transparent with them. And that's a direct impact from Diana. Sometimes when I get lost in thought and disassociate from what it is I'm doing, I do sometimes wonder what would things be like if she had survived or if that accident didn't happen? What would things be like now? Would she have remarried again? Would Prince William and Prince Harry be in completely different situations than what they are now? What would the royal family look like, you know, with her still being alive? And there's so many questions that will never be answered because of this tragic accident. Yes, there are a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding her accident and death. Why was the driver's blood alcohol content so high? Apparently the car was tampered with. Um, There's a whole onslaught of conspiracy theories surrounding her accidental death, but we're not going to talk about those today. Today, we are honoring and remembering her funeral and of a woman gone far too soon who really could have helped change the world. Rest in peace, Diana. You are surely missed. My sources for today's podcast are readersdigest.com, Wikipedia, the official Royal Family website, the TikTok account at Mata Effect, and the book At Home with Diana by Deb Stratus. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. If you would like to recommend topics for future episodes, or let me know how I'm doing to help improve the podcast, 
drop me a line over at the podcast email, which is britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. Any and all suggestions are welcome. If you want to stay up to date on the podcast and other events happening within the royal family, I do my best to stay as active as I can. Head over to Twitter and follow me at fanatic underscore royal or search for the podcast by name, British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I do my best to post regularly and be up to date. If you want to donate to the podcast to help support it, there are links both on the Anchor homepage and on the homepage on Twitter. Any and all contributions are welcomed and appreciated, and you will get wonderful rewards for your donations. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon, Audible, and more to rate, review, subscribe, and share. The more you do, the more people can see the show, and the podcast family can continue to grow. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy out there, and I'll see you in the next one.